Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is, pod.com. We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them. We're talking about life and life to stream right to you from the microphone right to your home, dude. Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo, because there it is. Welcome to the There It Is Podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thanks so much for joining us. We have a really great episode for you today. It's with comedian Gabe Malika, and he has a show called Solo, a show about friendship that he's been running at the Soho Playhouse. We actually just got a chance to see him run it, and it is great. And he's going to have an extended run of the show at the Soho Playhouse starting on March 23rd. We got a link in the bio for you to get tickets, and you can get a discount if you put in the code GABE when you get those tickets. Those will be up soon on Soho Playhouse's website. And Gabe and I talk about how he developed the show, how we got into all the work that he's been doing, and we talk a little bit about his sister, Kay, which is a big deal. Well, let's just get right to it. Here's my chat with Gabe Malika. Congrats on everything. I, I saw you before the pandemic. You did a show at the Magnum. That's actually where we briefly met, and I don't even know if I knew that your sister was your sister at that, at that That's moment. right. We <laughs> love when I get introduced. It's been a thing since high school because I was a year older. So we love it when people are like, oh, that's Kay's brother, as opposed to Kay being Gabe's sister. We think that <laughs> distinction is important. And I like being known as Kay's brother because people like Kay and she's social and <laughs> and <laughs> and I'm not social. That's kind of what my show's about. So I love my sister a lot. She's very funny. And you know her. From great. You. You're a magnet person. I'm a magnet person. And I met her when she was coming up through classes. And I think I had just gotten on a team and. I thought oh, she was cool. super nice, super funny, and she hung around super nice, super funny people. And I Hell recently yeah. found out how that she can also sing. And I'm like, wait, what? Uh huh. Uh-huh. When, where, and when does the talent stop? I guess it's ongoing. Uh-huh. We're good at what we're good at. We're bad at what we're bad at. I guess is what I'll say. So people are like, oh my god, what can't you do? I'm like, oh my god, we we we're so bad at like a million things. Like, don't ask Kay to do like times tables or me to like like. There's a reason my my screen is blurry right now because like my room is like a huge mess but like we can definitely sing <laughs> well that's everybody though you know yeah. like there's a million things everyone can't do there, there's something beyonce can't do we haven't found yeah. it yet but there's something yes, she might have a messy room you know i would love i would love to for her to that's the interview i want where she's just like yeah i can't cook like i just don't know i burn everything i would love that yeah like what if she was like i got famous because i can't cook and i just want to hire other people to do it. <laughs> yeah the, that whatever motivates you to be great uh, i i respect so you're a you're an improvise improviser. yeah i'm an improviser and i did stand up I, I i dabble in it every once in a while now but i actually did stand up before i did improv but you know yeah, no, no, I get it. I mean, my sister, like, she's the reductress improv sketch person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's like, she has done stand up and like has some really great jokes, like that I still quote to people <laughs> that I think they're so funny. My favorite was she did a joke about, I call my boyfriend the American dream because he doesn't exist. And I was like, that is biting. That is a very good joke. But she's like, yeah, I love community. I love like being around people. And I don't know, like, for me, stand up was very like I have my notebooks and I just like do my own thing. 
Mm-hmm. And it's only now that I'm doing solo shows that it started to feel very collaborative where there's a director and an art director and a scene. We have like a graphics person. So like it became kind of like that thing that Kay wanted, which is like very collaborative. But it just mm-hmm. like took years and years of doing it by myself to get there. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. You're from Garden City, New mm-hmm. York. Obviously, you're doing stand up before you started doing the solo shows. When did you start doing comedy? What, what was your desire? to get into it you know i performed my whole life Kay and i were in musicals and stuff like that mm-hmm. and so i was just like very comfortable on stage I, that was the thing i noticed early on at mics and stuff like that i was like oh i've been on i've been in a an opera where i was on stage for three hours wow. so like some of these people like were better joke writers than me early on or maybe were just like funnier than me early on but they just like didn't have the the presence stage on presence. stage yeah right. where like me where i was just like Open mics were tough because it wasn't like a performance. But once I started doing shows in front of real people, I just like felt kind of comfortable in front of like large groups of people. And my origin story is like kind of like what's in the solo show a little bit, which is like I started when I was teaching in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And most of it was I just needed an activity that would consume all of my time because it was like a very lonely year for me in Scotland. I was 22. I was teaching high schoolers, all the teachers were in their thirties. So I just like had nobody to hang out with. And so I bought notebooks and I listened to the Pete Holmes podcast and Mark Maron and just kind of became comedy obsessed. And it was just like a thing that I could do at all hours of the day. Mm -hmm. I could walk around the city, listen to podcasts, sit in a coffee shop, write in my notebooks. I still have those notebooks. You never get rid of those notebooks. Never. Every once in a while, I'm like, oh, there's a good idea in here. Like Uh buried through, like I've done comedy four times, you know, but there's some stories. There's definitely some stories in there that I, that made it into the show. And yeah, it's, 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 it's this weird antidote for like, for like loneliness in a foreign city. And then I came back to New York and started to take it seriously around 2016 or so. Interesting. It's also interesting that you went to Scotland to teach what, what, precipitated that i you know there's this exchange at my college where a graduate of the college goes over there to teach for a year and a graduate of their high school in scotland comes to america for a free year of american college and most of them don't stay they just like it's like an exchange year and it's kind of like a free spin Mm -hmm. and so every year at my college i went to a small liberal arts school called hamilton there was always this like random scottish kid who was just like in the freshman class and then would leave and i i never knew why (laughs) and then i applied for this teaching fellowship where i kind of did a little bit of everything Mm -hmm. and the reason i got it it, it's so funny like i i went to a school hamilton like has no education program really and it's mostly just like liberal artsy people Mm -hmm. and Listen, I did not have the best grades of the people who applied for that fellowship, but I just like had experience working with kids. I just like liked kids and like did that a lot. Uh-huh. And so they were like, I, th- I think they were just like, well, no one else like works in a marching band and works at a summer camp and like teaches actively. So I got the gig and it ended up kind of ruining my life, <laughs> but it was I'm glad I did it because of everything involved with being in. Yeah, it's it's in the it's in the it's it's so funny. It's in the show, which is great. But it's like, uh, yeah, go see my solo show. Um, But it's like I kind of had this like love triangle experience Uh, when I was there. And I just I needed comedy. I needed the community of it. And it was it's so funny. It was living in Edinburgh that I knew I wanted to move to New York because like all the comics kept talking about, oh, you can do five mics a day and you can run around. And I was like, oh, like in, in Edinburgh, I could do like maybe one 
one mic a week, maybe. And I was like, oh, it'd be so cool to just like meet other comedians. And so many of those people that I listened to on that Pete Holmes podcast, like Sean Donnelly, I remember. Mm-hmm. And now I like work with him. Like I'm his one of his wow. openers. So oh, it's cool. Been cool. Yeah, it's been really like surreal. I yeah. my dream is to do the Pete Holmes podcast because it would be like one of like the weirdest. Not that this <laughs> isn't a great podcast, Jason. I'm very happy <laughs> no, no. to be here now. But I, it well, is I'm, all I'm a stepping stone to all. <laughs> <laughs> You're a gateway to harder podcasts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the dream would be to do Pete Holmes and Marin. Yeah, um, no, I mean, mine too. <laughs> Right. I'd I mean, it'd be so cool to get to a place to get on on WTF. Yeah. Yeah. That would like be so bizarre. I worked with a comic once, this woman, Annie Letterman, mm-hmm. who has since like really blown up. But we did a weekend together in Saratoga and it was the week her Marin came out. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. Like, I just met her an hour ago and now I can listen to this like in-depth interview about her life. I was like, this is great. This is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Yeah, that's a bizarre timing. It was so I was like it made me it kind of spoiled me because like I would do another weekend. I'd be like, where's this guy's Marin? Also, you mentioned you threw in there you you were doing opera. How young were you doing musical theater? Yeah, musical theater. I mean, since like fifth grade, I was in a musical wow. and I, I was in uh, Bye Bye Birdie, which I ended up being in twice. Mm-hmm. And I was in Bye Bye Birdie and starting in fifth grade. And then from fifth grade until senior year of college, I was in at least one musical a year. Wow. Or that whole time sometimes by the time high school and college sometimes two or three wow and i said opera i was in candide which is like there's a big debate about like what it is like is it an opera is it an operetta is it musical theater the long and the short was like it's in english Mm -hmm. and i was on stage for three hours yeah so like that it was one of my dream roles it's one of like my three dream roles in, in in the world and so senior year of college, I got to play Candide. So that was like, um, that's cool. That was a real dream. Yeah. And so I, when I got to do three minutes at an open mic, I was like, I'm comfortable. Like, this is fine. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and so what did the interest of doing musical theater come from? Like to, to start at such a young age? You know, I think I just got lucky in that like my school district had like a program that okay. kind of like, and they were kind of siloed off. There was like the elementary school person and then middle school, they happened to do a show a year. And then in high school, there was like a fall drama or comedy and a spring musical. So I kind of got lucky that like the school system like fostered that. And I think, to be honest with you, there was a part of me that was just like, I like the attention Mm -hmm. and adults are telling me that I'm good at it, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like um, approval, attention. What's better for a kid than that? (laughs) Totally. I remember like because in high school choir. Like singing was what I could like really do. Like I was like a fine actor, like nothing special, but I always felt like, oh, I could just like sing my way out of like having to act. (laughs) And the people who were in the choir who were just like, they just liked it. Like no adult was like, you're great at this. This should be your life. They were just like, yeah, I'm here. Like I sing bass. We hang out. It's fun. I was always like, oh, those people like really love it. I'm getting all this like external validation, but like you're just yeah. like one of the I, I I strive to have more things like that in my life that like yeah. no one's telling me to keep doing, but I do because sometimes it feels like I have no hobbies. <laughs> like I just like I like comedy and I watch movies, you know? <laughs> yeah, that is an interesting thing of, you know, when you, you go into this sort of way of life or, or you know, comedy journey or entertain going into entertainment. Your hobbies are so directly connected to what you're trying to do professionally. Yeah. (laughs) Like so often, you know, even if you pivot, you're like, well, I'm going to 
learn to play piano. It's like, yeah, but that's so close to what you already do. <laughs> totally, totally. I, I feel that in a big way, especially like I have a lot of the show is about how I don't have friends, but I, I do have friends. I just make a distinction between like having friends and having bros. Uh -huh. so I have a lot of bros who like love comedy and will like their parents will buy them comedy tickets for Christmas and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I end up going to these like shows where like one year we saw Sebastian Maniscalco. Mm -hmm. at radio city and it's like oh i would never buy a ticket for this but like <laughs> i enjoyed it like i was like this guy's great like he's yeah. not my thing at all you know it's i could never do I, it and he's got a movie coming out with robert de niro i just saw the trailer for yesterday and i'm like good for that guy yeah. i've never super been into him but i've respected him i've appreciated him but... totally felt this exact same way where i'm like i'm glad people love that yeah it's well, not like, for me <laughs> he's a he's a workhorse that guy he's a funny cat he's a he he does the work and he you know mm -hmm. like uh, doing a show at radio city music hall ain't no thing it's yeah no sniff at. It was, so i'm not we're certainly not like downplaying his success or his ability yeah <laughs> but, but it is like that sort of cup of yeah. yeah it's like rem is a great band i just don't necessarily like them you know like a couple of, of songs so for in comedy like who are your people who do you where, 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 what movies are like people do you watch and you're like oh like that's my shit well to give a truthful answer when it comes to stand-ups it's people who have some controversy around i'm like oh of course yeah, yeah, yeah. so i just say that <laughs> of course is, these are the people i grew up on <laughs> seinfeld chris rock dave Chappelle mm -hmm. are so in my dna comedically because i was a little kid watching Chappelle and Mid and Tights. Oh my god! <laughs> you know, like and killing them softly is like, yeah, is like the greatest yeah. thing ever. And like yeah. the crowd is losing their damn mind. And then I was watching that too. And then I, I love SNL a lot, and I love a lot of mm. off of SNL. I was just thinking about this. I'm working on a blog for the website about SNL cast members, and I'm I've kind of come to a place where I'm like, Will Ferrell might be the best all-time SNL cast member because he's up there for me. I like people who have this weird bit but can also play real subtle. Mm. Weird, you know, like I don't know if you ever saw that uh, doctor sketch where he lost Molly Shannon and Chris Parnell's baby. <laughs> but that sketch is one of my all-time favorite sketches of that show. Yeah, And it's an obscure sketch. Yeah. But, no, I didn't recognize it off the top, but it sounds yeah. so funny. It's on his best, uh, one of his best ofs, SNL, but it's uh -huh. such a funny sketch. And they do such subtle things in that in, in moments. And that's part of why I love it is that it's the weirdness comes out of nowhere, but there's an underlying thing there the whole time. It's always, it's, it's stuff like that. So like those are, that runs the gamut for me. And then, mm. you know, right now it's like, I love Ego Wodum and Heidi Gardner. And yeah, they're killing it every week, yeah. man. Yeah, they're bringing and, it. Yeah, and Cecily Strong is somebody else who, who I look up to as well. So it's, yeah, the singing, she's so great. Yeah. Oh gosh, can do anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. really like singing, but also any kind of role. Like she could be in any position in any sketch. Yeah, and it's gonna crush, and it's gonna be so good. Yeah, ah, like love, the Judge Janine, like over the top. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> with the, you know, she's also one of those like, I, I, I think of them as like kind of like, um, like Keenan is great at this where he's just mm -hmm. like, Keenan is the pace. Yes. Where it's like, he will keep the sketch moving. Yes. He knows he's never, Keenan never lags. Right. And some of those, sometimes I, I think it's a really hard job, but mm -hmm. I think one of the things 
that sometimes like the younger cast members are like people who don't have a lot of experience on the show. Like they kind of just like they're a little yeah. hesitant and Keenan just like goes for it. And Cecily, somebody who also I feel like, oh, when she's on screen, like I feel in control. There's not going to be yeah. a mistake. They're going to mm-hmm. keep moving and you need those people because you, you it's a live show. You There's a there's a little tension. <laughs> oh, <know? laughs> absolutely. And you're so right about the pace. Keenan could have three lines in a sketch, mm-hmm. but he's still providing that pace. Yeah, because when he has those lines, he's hitting his marks, he's hitting the rhythm, and it really does set so much of the tone and rhythm of the sketch. He's he's also all time great. Oh, he's incredible. Show. My yeah. my cousin Devin. So Kay and I have a cousin Devin who writes for the Daily Show. Oh, cool. Has been doing that since Trevor started, and he also just like because once you're he's like in the Writers Guild, and like you just he just like knows a bunch of people because he worked in TV for a long time, mm-hmm. and so he's the last couple of years he's ended up working on the NHL awards, and mm-hmm. Keenan has been the host. Oh, and so it's just like him and Keenan in a room like figuring out monologues and sketches and and he's like keenan is the best person yeah like he's just like the coolest dude they flew devin down to like florida for the awards and keenan's buying them dinner and like right at the end of the meal somebody comes over and was like oh charles barkley paid for your meal and so it's like (laughs) keenan's living this like crazy life and my cousin's just like this is great (laughs) that's dope yeah, man. Yeah. So it's nice I mean, when those people are cool too, you know? For sure. I mean, that's the thing. He's been around forever. And it, it he has, I think, been a real constant for a lot of people because he has always been there. But then also, whenever anyone interacts with him, they talk about how supportive, how encouraging, how helpful he is. Yeah. And not everybody is like that in comedy. There was just like a no. thing with like George Lopez. Did you see this? No, where there's this young comic. I think I met him in Texas. He's a sweet, sweet dude. His name okay. is Ralph Ralph Barbosa. He's like okay. 26 or 27 from Houston and just like blew up on Instagram in like kind of the greatest way, which is just like people love the jokes. Like <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. not like some crazy take. He's uh-huh. not some like lunatic who people want to hear opinions from. He just like writes great jokes and he's so sweet. And he just like on some podcast, somebody brought up to George Lopez like oh what about this like young Mexican guy like Ralph Barbosa and George Lopez was like I don't want to talk about him he's not famous mm. and everyone was just like no you should be supportive this is like a young Mexican American comedian like he's like the next you you should be like all about this mm-hmm. um, and I would I just could never in a million years imagine Keenan be like oh no a young black sketch performer like I don't want to <laughs> yeah. talk about him like that's insane <laughs> yeah no, that would be bizarre. That's too bad that uh, Lopez is like that. What, what a weird take. Yeah, very bizarre. And like Could he be... called him and apologized, but it's still, it's just like, like, don't be a jerk. That's such an easy thing to not do. Yeah. That's, to me, that's such a hard thing to con- to consider doing. Yeah, I know. I think I think to a certain type of person, like, like the two of us, we'd be like, that's where your head went? Like, it seems right. like a zag. And for you, that's normal. That's so odd. It'd be one thing if it was, like, a joke. If you're like, who? I don't know him. And then just, like, you're trying to make a joke. But it's an, to just be like, nah, nah, he's not famous. So why why would I talk about him? It's like, yeah. Well, who it cares? It's so odd. I know. I think, like, living in the Hollywood Hills just, like, breaks your brain. It must. <laughs> just being in that bubble, you know? Just, like, if you've been, I was thinking about this the other day. 
because I, I something about Goop came up, and I was like, "Oh, <laughs> Paltrow, a lot of people like hate on her, yeah, for the stuff that she mentions in Goop because it's not like something the average person can buy, and like it's unreasonable. Like there are all these articles that people put out where like I tried to buy all the things that they mentioned on Goop in a week, and I lost all my money, and I was like, "Why do you think Gwyneth Paltrow?" <laughs> is talking to your broke Brooklyn ass. You know, like, uh, it is not for you. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. With Paltroy, her parents are famous. They were good yeah. friends with Steven Spielberg. That's why she is in Hook. That's mm-hmm. why she has a career. Yeah, Shakespeare sitting, in Love. Yeah. Right. Like, that person is not living a life <laughs> that you can relate to. She's been rich her whole life. Of Thousand course percent. you can't buy the things you can buy. Why do you think you would? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, would it... totally bananas. Yeah, that which again, <laughs> it's like you are in a bubble. Like, <laughs> like you, you are probably the nicest person in that bubble, but you're mm-hmm. still in a bubble. <laughs> totally. I think that's a funny thing. I, I, I was in LA for like three days, and mm-hmm. I'd never been there before. And we, we did a lot of driving around, just like exploring stuff. Mm-hmm. And like, there is this divide where it's like, oh, like. If you're a showrunner and you like, if you were the showrunner for Everybody Loves Raymond, you live on that hill and like nobody comes to see you and you're just like isolated. We're in New York, like you could live in a penthouse, but like you could still be in Chelsea. <laughs> like, you, <laughs> right. you know, like yeah. you could still walk by the magnet. It's not like you're for so sure. removed from society. <laughs> you see people everywhere all the time. Yeah. No matter where you live in the city. <laughs> yeah. There's something kind of nice about that in New York, I think. For sure. Yeah, I mean, like the amount of people who who I've who I know who's just seen Tina Fey walking down the street mm-hmm. from her from her home. <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? these people are around. You can reach them. Yeah, yeah. There's a, like I've mentioned it kind of jokingly on the podcast before, but it's true. But like Patrick Stewart lives a couple of blocks from me. Apparently, that's what I yeah. found out from a neighbor of mine. It's yeah. like, okay, Captain Picard lives in my neighborhood. <laughs> you know, like all right, I, I don't. I hope no one hears that and thinks I'm living large. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> He's not slumming. It's just that's how the that's how it is here. <laughs> totally. There's some like really famous Broadway actor, Aaron Tveit, who I like just will see walking around, and I'm like, oh, like I live in Astoria. Like it's 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 not cheap, but it's not you know the Hollywood Hills. You know, but he's just right. around. <laughs> right. People, everyone is around everyone, regardless of where they are on the economic ladder mm-hmm. <laughs> like everyone's around everyone here that's about i mean it's you'd have to go to connecticut to not be yes and some people do some, New York some people do, do that <laughs> yeah but they still end up seeing them when they get right into, <laughs> into the city <laughs> that's right that's right are you in brooklyn i am yeah okay very nice yeah <laughs> so uh, let's talk about you starting your solo shows because yeah. you mentioned that you did you were doing stand-up and how you're you're going through that and working through it, and then solo shows start happening. What made you decide to go that route? You know, I knew pretty early on that what most comics do, and I recommend this if you're listening, is they do stand up for like ten years and then they pivot. <laughs> then they're like, "Oh, okay, I know how to do this." So like Rabiglia, uh, Hassan <laughs> yeah. Minhaj, Jacqueline mm-hmm. Novak, mm-hmm. they just get good at stand up first. Me, because I had I saw my girlfriend's boyfriend, the Rabiglia special. Uh huh which is his second solo show, but it's this it's the first one that's out because Sleepwalk With Me got turned into a movie and so they never released the solo show except like, I think you can listen to it. You can listen, I know you can listen to it on Spotify, mm-hmm. but there's no like special. 
But I saw my girlfriend's boyfriend, and up until that point, I hadn't really considered comedy. This was like 2013, so this is like my junior year of college. And I saw that, and like, I was just like, "What is this? Like, this is like the crazy. This is like the best thing I've ever seen." Where there's jokes, but it's also like so much heart and so much. There's a story, and you feel so much empathy for this guy. And I, I kind of knew from the moment I saw it, I was like, "I think I could do that." I think I think that's like what I want to do and I was dating somebody at the time and she was like you're so impulsive you feel this way about everything and I was like no you don't understand this is like what I really want to do yeah and so when I started to do stand-up about 18 months later two years later I kind of knew right away it's like oh the the thing I'll be best at is the solo show thing Mm -hmm. and so I was kind of going to open mics early on like doing silly jokes but also in the back of my head being like how does this fit the narrative of this story that you want to tell yeah and then it just like took years and like hundreds and hundreds of stand-up sets to kind of just like start to piece it all together because I knew I had this like love triangle story. But at a certain point I did that and I did a version of the show in 2019 at the Edinburgh Fringe to oh, like yeah. te- like no audience, no reviews, no industry, truly like complete obscurity. And the show got a little bit better. And then I came home that fall and I was trying to figure out like what I wanted to do. And then the pandemic hit in the winter. Mm-hmm. And it was during the pandemic that I started to, I was listening to a lot of comedy podcasts again, and I heard Hassan Minaj talk to Berbiglia on a pod about their collaborators. And Hassan was like, yeah, I work with this guy, Greg Wallach. And I had heard of Berbiglia's director, Seth Barish, but I'd never heard of Hassan's director. So I went into the guy's website and he directed Hassan off Broadway on Homecoming King and all the way to Netflix. And then he's consulting producer on the latest Hassan show. And so I got in touch with him just like in email. And I was like, hey, like, would you do a session with me? Because he has like an hourly rate. And so I started working with, with Greg Wallach, who's now my director off Broadway. That's and once cool. I started working with Greg, he, Greg's not somebody who just like solves problems unannounced. Like he won't just like watch the show and just like start telling you what to do. It's very much like I come to him with like, I think this is a problem in the show. I don't think this is working. And he'll be like, oh, OK. And then we start talking about it. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of once I started being collaborative about my comedy, that's when the solo show started to click. And that's when we added this new element, which is we have this love triangle. But once we started with this angle of like male friendship as like the theme, as like the lens to look at all this stuff, mm-hmm. that's when the show re- really started to resonate with people where they're like, oh, yeah, men are lonely. Men don't really have friends or like men have friends, but we don't talk about things in a serious way. And once that started to click, then we were like kind of off to the races. Oh, very good. And so I'm not sure. I I feel like the show that I saw you do was called The Whole Thing. Oh, man. That was like the first version years ago. That's what I was going to ask. Was that was, was is that what this evolved into? If you saw the new show, you would be like, oh, there's like a little bit of the whole thing in there. But it's right? basically a whole different animal. <laughs> a, but okay. It, but I needed to be there before it could become you know it was like a draft really but as you know the thing about comedy it's like you present your drafts as if they're final and then it's only <laughs> years later we we're like actually that was a draft of that sketch that was not <laughs> what the sketch yep. was yep yep was that the show where you ended with your pants down yeah it's so funny that we the show no longer ends that way and okay. i use it as an example when i talk to people about the show it's like yeah the show used to be bad i used to take my pants off at the end <laughs> and so it's like you kind of and like I can see why I came to that conclusion because the pants off story is still in the show. Mm-hmm. And it's just like one of those, like just like a false ending kind of where it like, it made sense 
because like the words make sense. I tell a story where like an important detail is getting caught with your pants down. And so I was like, oh, the show should end like that way too. But now it's, it's it, no, it's a completely different ending, a much better ending. Um, <laughs> but I, I tell that to people to be like, listen, like, like, oh, do you not feel like you have an ending? Because we had a bad one that <laughs> I would have to greet people in the lobby with no pants on. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't remember you keeping the pants off. <laughs> I did um, in Edinburgh. I would hold the bucket for people to drop money in with my pants <laughs> off. And it was I feel like they would like that. I feel you like know, they would like that. In you're imagining a lot of people in the audience. And it was very rarely a lot of people in the audience. <laughs> How long of developing it after you thought you had it finalized did you put into it? Like how how much time of developing it after you thought it was finalized did you put into it? You know, even as I was doing it in Edinburgh, I knew it wasn't finalized. Mm-hmm. And I would have people in my life who would see the show and be like, oh, yeah, you're going to tape it, right? Like, it's, it seems like ready to go. Mm-hmm. And I had always kind of had printouts of my girlfriend's boyfriend and Homecoming King. Mm-hmm. And I would just, like, look at how dense they were. And I would wow. just see, like, how joke dense they were. And I was like, my show is not this. And I don't, I would never, I don't think I want to put this out unless it is this. And so I knew it wasn't up to snuff Mm -hmm. and then this past summer so my journey like this like these past like eight months was i was like i I need to give it a real shot this summer and like see what happens and so i went to the winnipeg fringe festival in winnipeg canada which is a lovely there's lovely people and it's a lovely festival and it's not much of a city and i did the show nine times there and that was when i developed the final line of the show and it was the first time i'd ever said this is a show about how i don't have friends Mm-hmm. And literally the first time I said that on stage, a reviewer for the Winnipeg Free Press was like, this is a show about a man with no friends. And I was like, I guess this is what the show's about. <laughs> and so like I needed that kind of reinforcement. So I did it nine times there. I did it five times at a place called 59 East 59th Street, which is like a theater kind of near Central Park mm-hmm. in like a pre-Edinburgh festival. And then I did it like 20 some odd times in Edinburgh. And then I brought it home and I did it at QED like two or three times. Okay. And at one of those performances, I had invited Jason Zinneman, who's a New York Times critic, and he tweeted about the show. And between a recommendation from a comic in Canada and that a review I got in Scotland and the Jason Zinneman New York Times thing, those, those three things kind of like triangulated to get me two weeks at Soho Playhouse. And the two weeks turned into a third week. And the third week turned into a six-week run, which we're at the end of. And then that six-week run, we're going to extend at least another month, maybe wow. two more weeks beyond that. So it, it was not linear. It seems, <laughs> seems linear now. We're like, oh, of right. course, Winnipeg to New York. to blah, blah. Like at the time, it was just like all chaos. And yeah. honestly, the show has changed. It's These latest six weeks, we've added graphics. Oh, wow. There's lights. I have a lighting designer. There's pre-show music that's more like curated. Like it's really turned into theater which is a thing that even this summer, it was not theater. At, at mm-hmm. This summer in Edinburgh, I was in a free venue, so there was no staff. The show right. would start by me unplugging my iPhone from the speaker to stop the music. And I'd <laughs> unplug, hit record, and just start talking. So to now be doing it in like a fancy theater is like kind of surreal and like not my origins at all. Because yeah. <laughs> even those first three weeks in November, we just did it with a microphone. And then we've switched. Now I have a headset mic. Like we've really, we've really turned the, turned the knob on the professional quality of the show. And the thing that was like, I was kind of hesitant to do, I kind of like the DIY nature of it, where it's like the story is good enough on its own. It doesn't need all that. And now I'm like, oh, we're making theater. If you're going to make theater, make theater, you know, don't like, don't shy away from that where it's like, 
oh, if you're if you get famous making sketches and then you get on SNL, the sketches are going to be different because now you're at SNL, you know, right, <laughs> right, right. You're not going to look the same. Right. So I'm kind of trying to take advantage of that a little bit. And we have. It's been it's been really fun. Oh, that's dope. Thank you. You, man. you mentioned that it's, you know, it's not been linear. It's actually been chaos. So how do yeah. you manage that because a lot of times when i see people working on things it does look chaotic and i'm like well how could just for their own well-being i wonder how this could go differently but it's probably just because you can't have everything in line from uh, the beginning you know like even when you start embarking on redoing the show you don't know what it's gonna what opportunities are gonna come up so Mm -hmm. Adding this new stuff is what makes it chaotic, I assume. You know what's funny is it's like the opportunities are chaotic or it's like uh-huh. you don't know who's going to offer you what or who's going to see it and want to work with you. Mm-hmm. So that stuff feels really chaotic between you and I and your listeners. Like we could really use if this is going to like really blow up, we could really use somebody being like, I'm going to put my name on this. You know, yeah. that's that would be a thing that would like blow this whole thing up and, you know, mm-hmm. it would be amazing. Like, um, if, like, uh, like Tyler Perry. So no, I'm kidding. yes, <laughs> I'm doing a but movie. Like, you mean like that kind of thing where it's like someone so presents or totally, like, totally. Okay. Cause we've been doing that just like on word of mouth kind of. Mm-hmm. So it's like those opportunities are chaotic, but the show, weirdly, the show is like the only thing I can control mm-hmm. where it's like adding a tag, like working on like a new element, a detail about a character, like that stuff. Like I, it's kind of between me and the director and like, I'm a couple texts away from different people being creative and that stuff that I um, that I do own where it's like the other stuff, whether we sell enough tickets, whether the theater likes the show, mm-hmm. whether, you know, there's just so many things I can't control that are really stressful. And, you know, six months ago, you know, I had nothing. And now like I'm paying a publicist with the money from the show. Cause so that kind of all like that's stuff I didn't know about eight months right. ago. And now it's like, that's a person I work with very closely because we're trying to, get people to come to see the show it's not vanity it's like i just need people in the seats <laughs> yeah yeah and it's it's that is the thing where, where it's like you're some of this i won't say you're figuring it out now because you knew that publicists existed but sure. you are sort of saying like well what else can we do to help this because yeah. now i'm realizing this is something else that needs to happen <laughs> and yeah i could see how that's totally chaotic yeah. And not, it's so funny. It's just like, not what I signed up for, you know, we're like, yeah. I'm like now I'm marketer and I right. send emails to publicists, right? like other, like fancy people's publicists. I'm like, you know, we got a no from somebody really famous. I was like, wow, they responded. <laughs> like, that's amazing. <laughs> like, yeah. Like Jake Gyllenhaal's publicist responded. I was like, this is amazing. This is so cool. <laughs> and it was just a, an invite to the show or just like, Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. it was a big Sondheim part of the show, Stephen Sondheim musicals. I'm like a big part of my life. Mm-hmm. And so I've been inviting people who have been in Sondheim musicals because I'm like, oh, they will appreciate this. Oh, I um, get you. As much as like I would love to just invite random celebrities. I do try to like have some sort of rhyme or reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Gyllenhaal was just in the latest, you know, Sunday in the Park with George. So that's why I invited him. But yeah, that's like a whole new thing for me is 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 stressful because I have yeah. no training in it. You know, I'm not a, I'm not yeah. a marketer. I'm not a social media manager. Like, 
Like, I don't know how reels work, you know, but, but luckily like, and I'm not going to get rich off this show. And so all the money I make kind of just like goes back into it. So there's like a little budget for this stuff now. It's not like I'm starting with nothing. I'm making no money from comedy and I'm spending all this money on publicity. It's like, no, no, no. Like we have this thing, like there is a mechanism for it to happen, but that's like totally new to me. And I, I don't yeah. have no manager, no agent. Like I'm truly just doing, doing this all on my own. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That is a lot. That is yeah. a lot to take on. And hopefully as time moves on, you can get a team where you can be like, you all can yes. handle all this. <laughs> and we do it now, kind of. Right. But the other thing is like, because there's no manager or agent, like it's not a ton of money, but it's enough money to keep going where it's like, oh, I don't have to like write off 15% right away to this person who's not doing anything. Mm -hmm. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, like that can all just go back into the show and there's money for stuff now. But and we, you know, I try to keep ticket prices low. I try to like you're invited. I try to comp creative people in comics and stuff like that, because you guys are the ones who tell people stuff. Yeah, so I'm like, I would rather yeah. save your $30 and get you to tell somebody that's way more useful to me. Yeah, um, no, I'm I totally want to see how it's transformed over the years. So yeah, man, it, it's different from November to now. So between yeah, what you saw now is like, you're gonna be like, is this the same person? <laughs> yeah, well, I saw a previous guest, Alexis Gay. Oh, my girl talking about it. She's the best. i adore her yes i was just about to say i adore her too and she's actually the reason you ended up on the podcast that's right like, her recommendation she like reached out to me it was like you need to have him on and i was like i do i actually already had him <laughs> in my brain as somebody to ask nice she was raving about the show and i, I was like that's this i gotta go see this show <laughs> uh, um we reopened march 23rd for another four weeks and we're gonna run thursday friday saturday so end of march beginning of april okay dope Oh, yeah. Oh. And it's my favorite thing to do. And it like, I'm kind of lost without it. Like, I don't I don't want the show to close because I'm like, who am I without the show? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. One thing you mentioned was that you knew how dense shows like this were and you, mm. you knew what you had at that time was not there yet. What were you looking at to make it denser, to make it more of what it needed to be? One of the things, and I learned this a lot from my buddy Kevin James Doyle, is uh, also does solo shows, and he has a really great solo show on Amazon. And I went to the taping of it, and he had done it at Edinburgh Fringe, and he opens the show with like a thesis statement, mm -hmm. and it kind of like structured the whole thing like like an essay. And I teach high school essay writing, and so there's a part of me that's like, oh, I don't have a thesis, like I don't have like a thing that this is like butting up against. Ah. So there was part of it that was just like structural. And so now I start the show with this is a show about I don't have any friends. And the audience kind of like takes a step back and they're like, well, what does he mean? And there's like tension in the air. And so that was really that was a thing like I knew I needed to figure out. I needed like a thesis. And in terms of the density, like what's so great about my girlfriend's boyfriend and Homecoming King in particular is that they'll be really funny. The stories are really good. And then there's also these like little tangents Mm -hmm. where they'll go like explain something else and then come back to the main narrative. And I just, I just like <laughs> in a, in a plain way, there just like wasn't enough laughter. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And the audience will tell you that. And I knew I had these like kind of big moments where I'm like, Oh, this is a big moment. This gets a laugh every time, but I wanted to do it enough mm -hmm. that I could make it as joke heavy as possible while also kind of like hitting you in the gut. And I think I'm at a pretty good balance now. Mm -hmm. There's only like one or two moments in the show where I'm like, I wish I had an A plus joke here and I do not, but they still exist. Like I've been, I, I've done the show 60 times 
in the past eight months, maybe more. Uh-huh. And there's still moments where I'm like, damn, there needs to be a good line here. They're like waiting for one. Um, so the answer is it never ends. <laughs> right. I mean, it's not a Stanley Kubrick thing of just like always tweaking it, but it is a Jerry Seinfeld thing of, you know, <laughs> up yeah. to releasing B movie. They're still working on jokes <laughs> just because yeah. it can always get a little better. It can always. Yeah. Always, yeah. And I'm reading a book right now by David Mamet. Because that was recommended to me by my director because I would be like, after the show, I'd be like, this one was good. This one wasn't or like I, after a week of shows, I'd be like Wednesday, eh, I wasn't really feeling it. Like I wasn't into it as much as I wanted to be. And then after the show, somebody would be like, you made me cry. Mm. And I was like, I did like Wednesday wasn't good. Wednesday sucked. Like Thursday was good. And so he goes, read this book. And so I literally just started today. I'm like halfway through it, which is it's about basically like it doesn't matter how the actor feels. Your job mm-hmm. is to like deliver and it's basically like shitting all over like the method acting technique <laughs> and it doesn't matter how you feel. You're there to, to do a job and to communicate clearly and say the mm-hmm. words. And I'm really starting to identify with that a little bit, which mm-hmm. is like, oh, I'm like, I've had great shows where I don't think anybody cried. And then I have shows where I'm like, that one wasn't good. And like somebody I really respect who's like been on Broadway was like, you made me cry. And I was like, what? Like, yeah. that's. And so I'm learning there's a performance element to this, too. Yeah. And like a fatigue element to this, too, where you do it so many times that I'm kind of learning these like things that I would never consider before that have nothing to do with the jokes. You know, in a weird way, like the jokes are like a crutch where it's like if you just keep (laughs) focusing on the jokes, you don't have to focus on the performance or the emotionality of stuff. And that's the thing that I think a lot of comics struggle with when they go to solo shows, me included, which is like, I just want to do bits. <laughs> and last <laughs> I night, I want everyone to laugh. Yeah. Last night, my friend Norlex, who's like an amazing comedian, one of the best in New York City, Norlex Belma, he's hilarious. He saw the show and it was like a little bit of a quieter one, Wednesday night, rainy. And he goes, dude, they didn't know some of those were bits. He goes, they thought some of those were just sentences. And I was like, these are bits. <laughs> I was like, Thank you for being here, Norlex. You understand. <laughs> yeah, you know, as as an improviser, I've definitely had shows where I was like, I don't feel like I did well. I didn't do what I feel like I set out to do or what I feel like is good. Mm-hmm. And then people, it's like, oh, you guys had such a great set. Oh, you guys were so fun. You were, you when you did this, it was so funny. And I'm always like, Huh? I guess you have to be able to watch Mm. or listen because there there are a ton of times I did stand up where I had recorded it or sometimes when I didn't record it and I would get off stage like I didn't go well. And when I would go through a postmortem joke by joke, I would go, well, wait, this joke actually got a laugh and this one did, too. Mm -hmm. That one, it was okay. I can work on that. But this one got a like you all of your jokes, but that one got good laugh. Yeah. What are you talking about? So yes. it's just, I don't understand still this many years in performing how this disconnect can happen. I mean, some of it is you're not watching yourself. Yeah. But I'm still there. I'm you know, like, yeah, like yeah. Subconscious, we're the laughter <laughs> sometimes. Totally. We're, and we're really, I need to learn that like I'm a pretty bad judge in the moment of how things yeah. are going. Like, I really am like somebody came to the show recently and their arms were crossed and they just seemed kind of grumpy and the whole show I'm like this guy's not enjoying it and afterwards he loved it and like really wanted to talk to me and what he, what I found out afterwards was 
he meant to buy tickets for the show before mine and bought tickets for the wrong show. Oh, and his girlfriend right before they walked into the theater went, wait, so what's this show about? And he goes, I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, I could never have known all that information. Of course. I just thought they were miserable. (laughs) They were just confused. Right. Oh, that's funny. And then they uh, end up loving it. Yeah, that's they loved it. Yeah, funny. they wanted to to hang out. You know. <laughs> yeah. Some and people so, are not aware of their body language and what it's represent. I don't totally. want them to be in their head, but like, be be aware of grumpy body language. <laughs> yeah, people don't realize, and it's really in a comedy club. You're you kind of have this permission to be like, "Hey, man, why are your arms crossed? Like, have a drink, relax." <laughs> But in the theater, like it would be pretty inappropriate oh, yeah. to start like calling people out. <laughs> and the theater is right. not, it's an old theater. It's not super comfortable. Uh-huh. And the front row sucks because uh-huh. there's just like nowhere to put your feet. So like I can feel people like feet falling asleep and like moving awkwardly. Oh, and there's wow. just like, I don't know how to say this. There's a way to put your feet on the stage and there's a way not to. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and when the show's going really well i don't care where anyone's feet are and when the show's <laughs> going poorly i'm like get your feet off my stage <laughs> that's hilarious yeah i wouldn't even think of putting my feet on the stage during me the neither show. me neither but, <laughs> but it, people is, do. it is particularly uncomfortable and when it's going poorly i tell them that it makes it feel like the like they're sitting on the dugout and like they have their sodas and stuff on the dugout and it's just a pain in the ass. And sometimes it feels disrespectful. And sometimes it's like an older lady. She's five yeah. foot four. She just needs a place to put her little feet. She's probably all types of sore. And I'm like doing all this math like during the show. And I'm just like, I'm not going to pick on this lady. She's off to the <laughs> side. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to step on her feet. But other people like you can just feel the disrespect. I'm like, you can't have your coat and your bag sure. and your feet. absolutely i think we all pictured the person who you could feel the disrespect of yeah yeah and it doesn't feel good because it's also like you know it's not a grim show and it's not a dark show but like Mm -hmm. i I, it's i you know talk about some emotional things yeah and so you want by the time you get to that emotional stuff for me it's like an hour and 10 minutes into the show you want to feel like you like the audience and they've earned it Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and if they feel like they haven't, it's hard to do and you don't mm-hmm. want to do it. But if I've learned anything from this book, maybe that doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> maybe just say the words. Yeah. I could talk about this stuff forever. We don't have forever, unfortunately. So <laughs> let's create something together. Love it. And when I'm really goofing around with people, I do like to get into not bits, but stories. I, I do mm. like to tell stories. And I've done stand up a bunch, but in recent years, I feel like the most fun I've had on stage, aside from like an improv show, has been when I was doing a monologue or something like that. Mm. It was like it felt good to do. And especially when you can fit some jokes in the best, the best, <laughs> the best, it's the best. And it just feels like a little bit more right for me to to approach maybe not the level of what you're doing, but something that's like more storytelling. So yeah. if someone was in a position like mine. And is considering doing this, where would you suggest starting? And, and like, what are the the stages of trying to put something together like that? Yeah, I think part of it is I eventually I got to a place where I just wrote down all my jokes and I wrote down all my stories and I started mixing and matching. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good place to get to. But really, it started with the moth. It started doing five minute stories at, at a moth slam. And it teaches you kind of like the structure of a five minute story. And it's got to be concise. 
you know, you don't have all day. And so I think that's a really good exercise. My dad always recites the cliche to me. I would have written it shorter, but I didn't have the time. <laughs> and I think a five minute story does kind of like, I need to just do the important stuff. And uh -huh. it kind of drives me crazy because there's so much that happened and there's so much backstory and I could, mm -hmm. I could do this and do that. But if you can write a five minute story and not worry about the jokes, like there's a part of me that's like the jokes will come. Yeah. Like, like anybody could give you those jokes, but the story, that's all you, nobody else could tell this story. And so I like to start with story structure. And usually it's like, there's some sort of change in this person at the end of the five minutes, I started out this way. And by the end of the five minutes, I'm this way. And I just did a bunch of those and I would do story open mics, which are nice because you get a little bit more time. Mm -hmm. And the storytelling seems a little bit more kind and generous with their attention and their applause and their laughter. And it's a little bit more welcoming. So part of me is, is like, oh, don't go to stand up open mics, do storytelling stuff. And you can always add jokes, which the comedians will hate to hear. But I do believe it. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get to a certain point where you have five, six stories and you're like, how do these connect? And they obviously connect because they're all you. And then you start to put together a solo show. And it, it starts for me. The first time I did it was it was 10 minutes of unrelated jokes and then like a 15 minute story. And I remember being like, I did 25 minutes, the longest I've ever done. And on Sunday night, I did the show and it was an hour and 20 minutes. Wow. So it, it does. It will get longer. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned Mike Birbiglia and he famously has that show Sleepwalk with me, which is mm -hmm. You know, serious topic, and and there, and there's a lot of stuff. You know, you're talking about a love triangle and this, and it's it. D does someone's show have to be of tragedy or something really uh -huh. scary or 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 sad? I don't think so. Feel full? Okay. Yeah, I, I, yeah. You don't have to like mine all the traumatic moments of your life. I mean, you want some tension, certainly. But I was just talking with Norlex, and he wants to do a show about the history of America and coup d'etats. And I was like, that seems great. And like my yeah. next show, I think is going to be about healthcare and about like kind of like more John Oliver-y oh, as okay. a solo show. Uh -huh. And so I'm trying to, there's a part of me that's like, this show has been my 20s. This has been like everything I've worked for in my 20s is yeah. now I just turned 31. And there's a part of me that's like, oh, I'd love to mine like something else because there's just so many topics. And yeah, so I don't feel like you need to like mine your, your tragedy necessarily. I mean, Jacqueline Novak, has been doing a show. She did it off Broadway. She's traveling the country doing it now. And it's a, it's a show about blowjobs. Uh, it's called <laughs> get on your knees and it's great. And it's uh -huh. so her, no one else could do it like her. It, it reads like a really fancy novel, but it's stand up and it's oral sex and it's just fantastic. So yeah, that's a really good question. Yes. Not everyone has to mind their trauma. <laughs> <laughs> well, good to know. Well, there yeah, it man. is. Gabe, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Alexis. Thank you, Kay. This was really fun. Yeah, thank you, Kay. This was really fun. Thanks so much to Gabe for being on. And don't forget, you can see his show solo at Soho Playhouse starting on March 23rd. We have a link in the bio where you can get tickets and use the promo code Gabe to save some money. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Gabe Malika. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at There It Is Pod, and subscribe to our YouTube channel at There It Is, and follow me on Twitter at Jason Far Jokes and Instagram at Jason Far Picks. Also, subscribe to our Comedy Lifestyle newsletter and support us if you can. We have a Patreon and a PayPal. Go to ThereItIsPod.com for newsletter and support info. Links in bio. We got a great episode next week with a couple of former guests. 
Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr.